Hello and welcome to this Life Changes podcast. You are now listening to one of our Sunday messages. If you'd like to know more about Life Changes, you can visit us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Now lean in and enjoy. My name is Gabe, if we have not met. Lovely to see you. I'm married to Fiona and, uh, and got a little girl called Olivia and a baby boy in three weeks' time, which is very, very exciting. And uh, this week we're starting a brand new uh, series, a six weeks preaching series on the book of Colossians. It's a New Testament book and uh, we're going to be spending six weeks of preaching there and uh, I couldn't be more excited and we want to be encouraging you as we do this preaching journey. We also have got a a two week, 14 day devotional that you'll find on our app if you want to read along with us because actually we believe that actually if just a Sunday sermon is all you're getting from the word of God, it's like coming to a tank fight with a BB gun. That's the image. Actually, the Word of God was meant not just to be preached, it was meant to be lived and read, and that's the privilege that we have of having scriptures. So we want to help you on that journey, so why don't you join us tomorrow morning, wake up, go on our app, and uh, you can find out there on Bible reading plans, read along for Colossians, there'll be a short devotional helping you to make sense of this book. But we really believe that this book that was written in AD 61-62, many, many years ago, has huge relevance and value to us here and now in our society today. And we believe it will change your life if you read it with faith. So we're really excited for that. A little bit of background very quickly about this book, and we'll dive right into the text this morning. This book, um, as I mentioned, written in AD 61, AD 62, but about a decade before that, we find our man Paul, who, wrote, who writes the book of Colossians. He's in a place called Ephesus, which is about 100 miles away from, uh, from the, the city, and, uh, and he's planting churches. He's doing amazing things. You can read the backstory of that in Acts 19. And in this journey, Paul actually never goes to Colossus where the church meets, uh, but, but he actually he meets a man in Ephesus called Epaphras. And this man Epaphras comes over, and you'll see his name mentioned a few times, and you read this four-chapter letter in Colossians. But Epaphras comes a decade before, and he meets Paul, and they have this connection. And I can imagine, it doesn't give us the full background story, but I can imagine from what we pick up in Scripture, Epaphras falls in love with Jesus in a radical way because of Paul's ministry, and falls in love with the mission that God has got. So Epaphras goes back to his home city, a home city which was full of many pagan worshippers. It was a, a melting pot of religions and a concoction of, of diverse thinking and just whatever religion you got, throw it in the pot, let's stir it up and see what comes out. So that type of background, the city, Epaphras goes there and plants a gospel-believing church, a church that gets, uh, they're full of Greeks and Jewish believers who move there and they come alive and a small community of faith develops in this most hostile environment. And Paul never actually goes to that church. Epaphras builds it and, and, and leads these people. And what we find is that actually a decade later in AD 61, Paul writes this letter that we get now called Colossians to this church. He's writing it from prison. You can read uh, this sort of time frame in Acts 27, 28 when he's writing this letter, the book of Ephesians and the book of Philemon at the same time. He was a busy man in prison. And, uh, and the reason why he's writing this letter is because Epaphras has come to visit him in Rome. We're sitting in a prison cell. Epaphras comes a decade later to tell him that actually the church is doing well. The people are great. But there's, there's, there's this heresy that started to creep in onto the church. And he's, there's a bit of concern in Epaphras' heart saying that if we don't make a stand now for the truth, that actually this church could be swayed into the way of thinking of the culture and end up being disqualified of its power, its freedom, its truth that it has been held on to. And this heresy is something that's not new to the church. It's something that's not stopped. It's a thing, a fancy word called Gnosticism, which is from the word gnosis, which basically means secret knowledge. 
because there was a bunch of people who were saying, yeah, Jesus is good, but actually, we've got actually the more superior way. And they were trying to, there were some people telling them that they've got the, that yes, Jesus is cool, what Paul was preaching is cool, but that's simplistic. We've got the deeper inside track. And they're trying to sway people away from the gospel of Christ alone to adding a few things. There were some Greeks amongst them who were thinking that, uh, that Christ is good, but why don't you add a little bit of knowledge? Like a little bit more of like superior knowledge to this equation in terms of actually people would come and tell them, yes, Christ is good, but, but have you graduated into having visions and angelic encounters? And they start to put on these extra layers that made them superior to the ordinary Christians. And, uh, and then there was this, uh, this type of mysticism that came in. There was also the, the Jewish link on this side. He said, yeah, Christ is good. But actually, if you're not following these type of traditions, this type of, uh, of wisdom, this, in, this, this, this type of, of suffering, then actually you're also not superior. It's this ascetism where they were saying, if you're not following these type of days of, of, of celebration, if you're not doing these rituals, if you're not uh, punishing yourself in this sort of way. So there's this mystical side to saying, actually, there's got to be this more of some deep, weird, super spiritual type of uh, religion. And then this side is saying ascetic type of side of actually got to denying yourself and beating yourself and, and punishing yourself on this side. And those concoctions were coming and they were pulling away from the simplicity and the power of that Jesus Christ is enough. And it's to this Paul writes this letter. And maybe you're thinking, wow, that sounds strange, Gabe. What relevance has that got to do with today? I want to tell you a whole lot. There's never before has the world been embraced with many different types of inside tracks on the truth. That actually, this, this, the Christianity is in its purest form is seen as almost simplistic and actually from a bygone era. Actually, we need to add to it. There's, they, they don't have the, they weren't the, the Bible era, this, the thinking of the day, the Bible era is a little bit primitive because we've evolved. We now have more type of wisdom. We've got more superior experience. And actually, we're saying, as that happens, the war on this truth of Jesus is enough for whatever situation, for every moment, for, every, for life and God, is that Jesus is enough. The war on that has never been fiercer. Uh, and I want to show you in, in, how it's actually relevant to our lives, not in an ethereal level or an out there level, but actually right here in our hearts. And I tell that in three quick stories. Uh, when I first moved to Cape Town, I came here fired up, excited. I moved here for the, uh, the express purpose of being involved in the church, preaching the gospel. That's all I wanted to do um, as a young 20-something-year-old. And, and I remember there was an occasion where I got a phone call from two girls who were in our, our youth ministry. And they said, actually, could you come to our home quick? And I was in, in, in good old Flamingo Flay in Tableview. And I remember arriving at a situation. These were two teenage girls late, late, late at night. And there was a huge, there was an uproar happening in their home. And a, a car is pulling out. And I remember being feeling very outside my depth. And I ran upstairs. And I walked into a situation where there was, their, 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 their mother was, was half-dressed. There was abusive things that were going on. These girls were weeping. There was, um, uh, there was a strange uh, ethereal thing going on there in terms of their, there have been some strange pagan rituals that have been happening in the house that led to some sexual deviancy. And, and my, my brain, an abusive way of this, my little brain that came from a Christian household had no reality of how to understand this or make sense of this. And the girl said, could you come and help? And I remember walking in and feeling very exposed at how little I could help. I remember going, I don't have what it takes for this situation. I've got no experience in this regard. I, I, I'm from a Christian home where, where actually we made up Christian versions of swear words. So I'll say things like ding fudge instead of swearing. You know, that's my level of sin in this area. And I'm, I'm walking and going, I've, I've hit the mother load. What do I do? 
And I remember the woman who was holding some, it was just some bizarre things. And just, I don't want to, I'm not trying to ex exaggerate the story, but the story was on such a level where I felt this presence of evil there. And I felt ill-equipped. And I remember leaving, and I, and I prayed, and I prayed, and, but there was not much faith in my heart, and I left quite despondent and saying, maybe I need, I need something more. I need to experience Jesus in a real way because I don't know if I can actually have impact in these sort of situations. I felt very unqualified, if I'll be honest. So a few years later, three stories in a row. A second story is that um, I came onto eldership at Life Changes many years ago. Um, believe it or not, I'm the longest-serving elder at Life Changes. It's a true story. I outranked them all. But anyway, um, but, but the truth is that I came was as a young man, I was a single 20-something-year-old, and Wally, the guy who planted the church, brought me onto the eldership at that time, and it seemed a strange decision at that time because there was a whole number of voices that actually left the church in response to me coming onto eldership. And, the, and, and I remember, like, I, uh, my heart was, I'm here to serve, and it felt like the church was responding. And again, the whole, and as a whole, I promise that we've got a very kind church who back people and back them despite themselves. But I think sometimes in those moments, we hear the minority voice, and all I could hear was people saying, who is this young guy? Where, where's his wife? What experience does this guy have? Who, what knowledge? Did he go to Bible college? No, he studied marketing. Who is this guy? And I remember, I remember, being in a meeting with some leaders even, and the, and the word, and it wasn't the majority voice, but, but it was the one word that kept coming out, he's unqualified. Out of people's mouths, he's unqualified. And I remember leaving going, actually, maybe I am. And, and, and I left, and, and the incredible thing is God is so kind, and, and, and people left the church, but, uh, but while he stuck to his guns, and God's been so faithful in that journey. But the amazing thing is that that word just gets in, and it sticks there. And for a long time, I remember thinking, I, have, I'm, I don't know a lot. My experience level does fall short. How, what, how am I going to have impact into these sort of people? And I thought, maybe I need to, I need to add some, uh, I need to know some more. You know, I need something different. I need, maybe let me start using lots of Greek and Hebrew words. That'll impress them. Because <laughs> yeah, then the people will know. I tell a third story where that maybe it comes a little bit more close to home. A few years ago, we were going to um, antenatal classes, uh, prenatal classes, and they were telling us on how to, when the baby comes, what we're supposed to do. And one of the lessons they said was, never shake a baby. And I remember going, who the heck would shake a baby? This is the most bizarre thing I've ever heard. Never shake a baby. Why would you shake a baby? Night one, when we come home, and the child has been screaming for nonstop and I don't know what to do, and I've never experienced tiredness like this before. And I feel at the very depth of myself, and it's three in the morning, and I've sung the same song over and over to no avail, and the baby's screaming, and you can tell the neighbors are getting a bit rattled, and I don't know what to do. The only words I kept repeating to myself was, don't shake the baby. Don't shake the baby. <laughs> and I say that in jest, but and, 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 and in retrospect, I look back and actually it wasn't, wasn't the biggest deal. But in that moment, I felt very unqualified to be a dad. I felt, I don't know what the heck I'm doing here. I, I really wish I'd taken more notes in that thing. And, and, I, and I just, I tell those stories because in our lives, there comes a lot of moments where there's this, these dramatic moments when we're faced with the presence of evil, where there's moments where the voice of, of people who disbelieve that actually you shouldn't be where you should be, say the word unqualified, or even if it's in your natural circumstances, a dad, is a new job, or, or, some, or something's going on, there often is times where we feel unqualified. 
Maybe I'm the only person here. Couple, good, thank you. But I want to tell you, as I re- the incredible thing for me is I tell those stories because for me those stories are so fresh in my mind because it was around that time that actually I discovered the book of Colossians in a real way. About 10 years ago, and I'd read it before, but it became so real to me, the truth in the book of Colossians, so I just speak to this voice, that the enemy's voice that said, unqualified, and so I just speak truth into my heart, that Jesus is enough, that Jesus is enough. And I want to pray this morning that actually as we go in this series, I believe as we preach it, we're going to find that Jesus, that Paul, the, the writer, and Jesus as he applies this to our hearts, is going to be establishing new paths for people, new identities, and ultimately new ways of living and just shaking off the old. And I believe God is going to define us in a deep way. So we're going to read two verses of Scripture this morning. Two verses, just to give us uh, some context. And we'll pray. And I don't think we'll be too long this morning. This is what the first two verses say. It says this, the let, this letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. And from our brother Timothy, we are writing to God's holy people in the city of Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. May God our Father give you grace and peace. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning as we gather around your word briefly, as we have sung songs of truth to our hearts, as we, have, uh, as we are doing community together in these spaces. I thank you now for your word to come and establish truth. I thank you, Father God, even this moment. Today, I really feel the word unqualified over people's heads and over people's hearts and over people's lives is going to crumble at the full weight of your word and your truth. Your word is truth. Now sanctify us by your truth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Briefly this morning, I want to give us a quick thing. This is by no means an exhaustive list, list, but sociologically and as we look at our present day, where where do we get our identity from as human beings now in the 21st century? Where do we establish our identity? Basically four places will be on the screen behind me. We get our identity, number one, from our performance. What do I mean by that is uh, you go to any party, you go to any social gathering, and the first thing people ask is, you'll introduce yourself, and the first thing people do is, what do they ask? What do you do? What do you do? And now, not, not an evil question, not a bad question, but I think in our society and in the human heart, the question, what do you do, and is often followed up, the answer we give is often followed up by our CV. Not just our, what, what we do between Monday and Friday. It's almost like we have to qualify ourselves to make an impression on somebody. Because we know that they're going to be evaluating what you do. By Actually, there's a whole lot that comes alongside that. And I know that sort of story. I know that at times when the different crowds ask me what I do, I know that the answer pastor will be, will be greeted with a, quite of a different reaction. And I've thought of many euphemisms I can use and different things. That, but actually, it's, it's just so interesting to know that the, the, the things inside of our hearts, and actually that question, what do you do? It's not an evil question. It's not a bad question because we were designed to work. We were designed to have a purpose. But when that thing becomes our identity, it becomes more than just a job or a calling. It becomes who we are. And we base our value on what we, what we are doing or what we're not doing. And often that's when people have identity crises is when they're passed over at work or when the business that they set out fails or when they get retrenched or their financial package doesn't get to the state. Then that question, what do you, what do, you do, starts to become a question that exposes you or then qualifies you. So we get it from our performance. Secondly, we get it from our possessions, what you have, or more, probably more importantly, what you don't have. 
And we start to have this keeping up with the Joneses type feel where it's actually the possessions and what we own and what they have and, and the market value of our house. And do we have a house? Do we own a house? Will we ever be able to own a house? Do we, what, where am I in my financial journey compared to that person? And we see, meet somebody who started school with us and now we see where they are. And that possession thing starts to determine who we are. Thirdly, the sense of pleasure. And never before has society been more defined by identity being dis- defined by pleasure, by things about allowing our sexuality to define us. That's who I am, statements of the day. When actually, yes, our sexuality is a huge part of who we are, but it's not our defining part. But in our culture, that becomes the definition of who you are. And not more just about that sexuality, it's about what you eat, what you don't eat, will become part of your, your identity, or even as much as on a superficial level, who you support starts to become our identity. And finally, the one probably hits me the most, popularity, the question of what people think of you starts to define us. And never before more is this a real issue in the social media age where there's actually an app where you can airbrush your photos. It's wonderful. I've, I've seen some people, I've seen some of you in your profile pictures. And then I've met you in real life, and I'm like, wow. It's beautiful. I've even toyed with the ideas of giving myself brown hair, but no, just leave that, leave that. (laughs) But, you know, it's in jest. It's always this thing. I think we live in this thing. The social media age is just, I don't think it's the cause. I think it's the mirror that's what's in the people in humanity's heart that's highlighted a society that lives on the opinion of others. You go, go through profile after profile, and most of the pictures are the same selfie with different backgrounds, the same part. It's like the same photo again and again and again of the same person. And it's so great to see that photo again and again. Could you move away? For, no. Anyway. And yet we all do it. Yet this is the, 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 the selfie generation. It's in our heart, but I don't think it's just our generation. I think it's always been in the human, human's heart. Social media has just ex- exacerbated it. But, and it's always this journey of actually thinking this, I've got to look better than that person. I've got to be better. We keep up. And I think that it's actually somebody, a sociologist quote was saying that actually with all these technological advances, advance, with us becoming a more advanced society, has never more has depression, anxiety, and fear being more rampant. And actually it's this, I want to set us free. There'll always be someone more better looking than you. There'll always be somebody bigger than you. There'll always be someone richer than you. And yet we play this game. Because this is at the very core of who we are, where we think our identities are established by. I'm not trying to be sociological here. I want to get to the text. Because as I read the text very quickly this morning, just an introduction to whet our appetite. There's actually three things where I believe the Scripture tells where identity should not come from. As we read this first two verses, I find out that our identity is not determined by our past. What I love about this story as it starts saying, this letter is written by Paul. We can breeze over that. The, most letters these days, if you write a letter, you'll leave your name at the bottom. You have to read the letter. Who's this one from? Oh, that's from that person. Or an email. Who? No. And these days, the first thing says, this, it tells us to begin, this letter is written by Paul. And I think we don't, I don't want to breeze over this. It needs to still sit heavily, even if we know this and we've read it many times. But this man, Paul, should not have been writing letters to churches. This man, Paul, should have not been, he should have been in jail. He was in jail, but for a different crime. As I said that, I was like, he was in jail. 
but for different crimes, because actually for different things, because Paul, if we just flick a few pages before to the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 9 in particular, we find this man, Paul, is actually in a different, almost a different life, is actually called Saul. And his profession, his job, was to preside over the death of Christians. He spent his life, uh, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a, a high-ranking a high man in the, in, the, in, the, in the public opinion of the day, in the religious sect of the day. But he spent his existence trying to snuff out this new religion called the way, followers of Christ. So much so that actually we find him on his way to, to go, when Stephen, the first martyr, is killed, it says Paul, for the artist formerly known as Saul, presiding over his death. Paul's, Paul's going, actually, this is good. This man's got blood on his hands. This is a man who had to, was met by Jesus on the road towards Damascus in a dramatic way, and Jesus struck him blind and won his heart in a moment and set him on a different course. And, and, and I just I think as I read this, I always have to remind myself, because I know my heart is so fickle, and the, those voices of unqualified nature love to pull us back and drag us back into the past. It's almost like there's a cable that seems to be attached to our hearts that whenever we step forward, we've got our past just tugging a little bit. Whether it's old habits, old relationships, it's old, uh, whatever it is, but things pulling us back and saying, just drift back, drift back, drift back. But actually, this is the reality is that actually we have to untie those cables. We have to cut those tables off, cables off because our past will never determine our future. And I love to remind myself this because actually Paul was a man who killed Christians for a living. And I say it to my heart again and again, if if you're here today and you think you're too far gone, I ask you, have you been killing Christians? And, and if you say, oh, how did he know that? That's a bit awkward. Then I say, well, then don't worry. Even that's okay. For the grace of God can cover that because he, God used that man, a murderer of his people, to write 13 of the letters of the New Testament, to become the, most, the, the biggest figure apart from Christ in the whole of Christendom. God used that man. It's the equivalent of God using now, saving now, an ISIS terrorist. A man who was walking in and bombing young school children. Can you imagine? Can your brain fathom that? An ISIS terrorist who's just bombed schools, meeting Jesus, and then Jesus says, I'm going to use this guy to change the face of the church. That's what God did. Used a terrorist to write our Bible. I'm saying, God, none of us are disqualified. None of our identities are shaped by the past when we allow Jesus to come into our stories. Secondly, behind me says, our identity is not determined by our circumstance. I love the fact that the majority of Paul's letters were written from prison. Paul's greatest impact to church history was not even his planting of the churches, his physical ability to be there. Though actually, his, his influence to us today, why his voice still has a huge impact on Christendom today, here and now, why we can read his writing and be impacted by it through the power of the Holy Spirit, is because he was restricted to prison. I don't know about you, but if I was in that circumstance, I'm sulking, I'm putting my feet up, I'm going, this is not cool, uh, I'm like, can, can I just come and watch some Netflix, please? I just, I'm done. But this guy actually in that moment... He says, actually, in a lot of this Bible, he says that he, he speaks about the Word of God is not chained. And what I love about that, I don't know where you are, sir, ma'am, in your story, but often our situations can become so pervasive, can so constricting. We can sit in situations and relationships, and our kids' health, our kids, uh, what is going on in their lives can become make us into a small space. What customers are saying about us can make us into such a small space, and our circumstance can start defining who we are. And we walk with a small space around us because we've allowed the circumstance voice of the moment to determine what we are living in. When actually the Bible tells us again and again, your circumstance does not define you. 
Your circumstance does not define you. And I don't know what you're sitting in today. Maybe you're sitting here and there's the state of depression because business is on a knife edge. Because relationships are falling apart. Because you, you, you're saying, actually, financially, I don't know how we're going to do it. You actually are struggling to make sense of your circumstance. That does not define you, sir, ma'am. You may feel imprisoned, but his word is never imprisoned. His word has never changed. His word is always advancing. I want to tell us finally, your, your identity is not determined by man. I love how Paul says, Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ. I love that. This was not a career choice by Paul. Paul didn't marry the Christians and think, oh, I think I need a job change. Send out the CVs. Oh, apostle, LinkedIn. Let's see what that's about. No, no, no. This, he was chosen by the will of God. And I love the fact that actually so often we allow the voice of man to determine our identity. The words, as I, for a long time, I lived with that word unqualified, even though it was just in the peripheral vision of my life, that word unqualified seemed to haunt me and stop me from taking the steps of faith I knew God was calling me to because actually I don't feel I've got enough. And I allow the voice of man to determine my extent and what God was going to call me to when actually God says, no, I call, not man. My voice qualifies, not man's. And I think sometimes we have to allow that to seal that actually we are chosen by the will of God. And I want to help us with that because actually our identity on anything else, on performance, on possessions, on pleasure, on popularity, as Jesus says it, it's shifting sands. You'll never be able to get a firm grip because you can never have enough. You'll never be able to be popular enough. You'll never have the right voices. Uh, it was such a, a thing at the men's camp when we were praying. We had, we had a moment where we got three of the fathers on the camp to pray blessings over their sons. And tears started to flow in men's eyes as they, as they watched this happen. And the moment where Marco says, actually, if you're here today and you've never had your father say a blessing over you, and he said, let alone, maybe you had your father say just, you only ever heard negative things from your father. Would you, we want to pray for you. To see men's hands lifted up, some of them up to the age of 80. Eight-year-old men putting their hands up saying, my father never spoke a kind word over me. And I go, this is the, the reality. But actually, oh, the great news about the gospel is actually Jesus saying, those, those words or lack of words will not define you if you allow me into your story. If you allow the heavenly Father in your story, he, his words start to become the superior voice in our lives. And actually, we've got to go to war on these things. And I want to help us as we land this morning with these three things from the text. I'll be behind me here. It says, this letter from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and from our brother Timothy. And he says, we are writing. He's writing with Timothy. We're writing to God's holy people who are faithful in Christ. Just three things about these three words very quickly that are circled, underlined, highlighted in my Bible. That word holy there, in other translations, the ESV puts it to the saints. And that word, I don't know if about you, but that word holy or saints often for me has this connotation of um, like this moralistic superiority. Anyone ever thought of that? You know, it's the saint. He's a saint. It's like this, they're up there, this moralistic understanding of who they are. Wow, they're, they're holy. That thing is a holy place. That's a, that's a holy person. It's like this moralistic up there. When in reality, that word does not have any moralistic virtue attached to it in the writing. The word at the base level, holy or even saint, basically means set apart. So it's just like the fact of the fact that, that some people, you know, when we say a building, a church building, that's a holy place. Often we start to think that that place has got some mystical value to it. We know in the very essence of what it means is, no, there's no mystical value to it, but it is still holy because it's been set apart for God's use. 
So often we think of this, wow, there's some, if I walk in there with sin, oh, what's going to happen? But actually the truth is that actually it's been set apart for God's use. He has the amazing the other words that can be put there, set apart, appointed, or chosen by His will. And as I read those words, chosen by His will, I need to remind our hearts and my own fickle heart that the will of God, we told in Romans, is good, pleasing, and perfect. So in my Bible, where I've seen the chosen by the will of God, I've written there, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So where it says that I was chosen to be by God, when I've been called by God, appointed, set apart by God, it wasn't by default. It wasn't because he couldn't find anybody else. It wasn't because actually so many other people said, not me, not me, not me. He goes, oh, fine, we're going to get the, the third tier guy. Come on, you're going to be the third tier scrum off because the other two are injured. No, no, chosen by the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. His will is always good, pleasing, and perfect. And this is the powerful thing for us. And there's a scripture in Ephesians that I love. It tells us that we were chosen before the creation of the world according to his pleasure. Now, for a long time, I loved the fact, yes, I'm chosen. Yes, I'm chosen. But it says, according to his pleasure. And I don't know about you, but I think we have this concept of God who's a God who's above pleasure. But he's the one who created. And I've got this image of a father when he chose me. He did not see me. It wasn't like this production line coming along and going, uh, Gabe, uh, can he come in blonde? Do you have one in blonde, please? No, no, cool. No, oh, fine, I'll, I'll, I'll take him because he's on off, half price. Yeah. No, no, it wasn't this production assembly line, but actually he chose us according to his pleasure, his great delight, his great joy. And I have to remind myself, I read that text, I see that word holy, and I see that word chosen by his will. It starts to fill inside of me not some superiority about my moralistic state because if that's the case, I fail every time and I get more crushed by that word because I'm not holy in myself. But when I understand the actual reality of this is John 15 verse 16 tells us, you did not choose him, him, he chose you. And that should fill us with such joy because if, if I chose him, then I am very unqualified. Because I tell you that means if I chose him, that means some days I can unchoose him and I can choose my own way. But the good news about John 15 tells us is that actually we're in the palm of his hand and he chose us. There's a, that great song uh, in the 90s and I loved it. I found Jesus. Great lyrics, I mean great melody, terrible lyrics. Because theologically, you didn't find him, he found you. Because often at the problem that comes into our insecure hearts is if we found him, then what happens a few years later? Hey, I lost him. I don't know where I put Jesus. No, no, he found you. And he holds on to you. And he's called, he's set apart, he chose you. And the amazing thing is, as I said, he appointed you for a sacred use. That word holy is not some moralistic thing. Now you've got to get to some level. No, it says you were set apart for a sacred use. And John 15, 16 tells us he chose us. No, we didn't choose him. Why? To bear fruit. He chose you to bear fruit. He didn't say, actually, I'm going to, you must choose me and then you must bear fruit. No, he says, I chose you and you're going to bear fruit because of my choosing. Your ability to bear fruit is because he chose you. Now this needs to settle deep in our hearts. The second word there is faithful. And again, for a long time, I read these words as disqualifiers. When we come in with the word unqualified, settling in the back, back view of our lives, we read the Bible with a with lens that we think of this thing is actually just another voice disqualifying us. For a long time, I read these words and they just put greater condemnation on me. I'm not holy. I'm not faithful. But if you read the text and you understand what's going on here, that word faithful means steadfast. 
and Brett quoted earlier, one of my favorite scriptures, 2 Timothy 2, it's like this little poem that Paul just starts waxing lyrical. On the back, If you go read the backstory of 2 Timothy 2 where he gets to the portion I'm going to quote now, he's talking about God's choosing of his people. And then he goes on and he starts to say actually that if we, you can go read at home, 2 Timothy 2, but the, the climax of it says that, that even when we are faithless, God is faithful because he cannot deny himself. People often say the thing, they say, nothing is impossible with God, which is true. But scholars will tell us the divine impossibility for God. There is one divine impossibility, is that he cannot deny himself. Because if he went back on his word, then, he's not, then his word is not true anymore. So he can never go back on his word. What he said will prevail. So what he, if he is faithful, he cannot go back on that because then it makes him unfaithful. So here's the amazing thing, that actually God's faithfulness is not determined by our faithfulness. Here, here, let's get really theological very quickly. Is God's covenant with man was first initially with Adam. You see the first covenant made with Adam and Eve. Then in that, that one we know failed. Adam and Eve failed. God didn't fail. They failed. So God makes a covenant with Moses. And, and what happens? Moses does, God doesn't fail. Moses fails. So God makes the covenant with the nation Israel. Did God fail? No. He's faithful. Israel failed. So the incredible thing with Jesus coming, the amazing thing, this is rapid fire, understanding the nature of covenant, the agreement with God and, and man, God's faithfulness promised to man that man, God, will, God will be our God and we'll be his people. The incredible, amazing thing is that Jesus comes and he comes as a representative of God and a representative of man. The word is hypostatic union. So when Jesus came on earth, he was 100% man and 100% God. Okay, so this is huge. So when he died on the cross, the Bible, it wasn't the Bible. So we often have this understanding that when Jesus dies on the cross, that God was some far away saying, oh, you know, I can't even look on that. I can't even, which maybe we understand. We can wrestle that one to the ground later. But Corinthians tells us that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So here's the main, we often think that God was this bad cop and Jesus was the good guy. No, no, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So here's the amazing thing. We told, we told about the new covenants. If you've just been around for recently, here's the greatest news. Don't worry about the old stuff. Here's the new stuff. Is that actually we have a new covenant based on better promises. Not better requirements, but better promises. And here's the better promise, that the covenant that God cuts with you and I is actually not with you and I. God cut a covenant with one man, and his name was Jesus Christ, the representative of humanity. So God's covenant with humanity is not with you and I, because here's the great thing. If it was with you and I, we would stuff it up again. So here's the amazing thing. God cut the covenant with Jesus as the representative of God from this side. But he says, but guess what? I'm also the representative of man. I'm the same one. So Jesus is faithful to represent God. And the great news is he's faithful to represent man. So here's the covenant that's put in place. So when you and I say, yes, I believe in Jesus, we get included in this covenant. It's not an agreement. God's saying, cool, you've got to make, here's the, the rules. You guys know. Jesus says, it's great. You can come in. I've got the agreement with this guy, Jesus. And here's the good news. If Jesus is faithful, we'll always be called faithful. Because actually Jesus' representation on our behalf never falls short. He's the lawyer that always makes the agreement short. He's always the one who fulfills the promise. He's always the one who comes through. His work was perfect. So covenant was cut not with you and I. God actually took us out of the equation and said, I've got this one, guys. I'm doing it with Jesus. And the Bible tells us that actually that's why Jesus is called our man in glory. 
Our man in glory tells us our man in glory ever lives to pray for us. And the great news is our man in glory, he's now seated at the right hand of the Father, but he's still got the nails in his, uh, the, the scars in his hand. Why? Because actually he's still our man in glory who says, actually I've, been, I've risen, but I'm still your representative. He has not now left his humanity. He's still always fully God, fully man, because he's still holding up the end of that covenant. How wonderful is that? How wonderful is that good news for you and I? And it's only because of that that actually we are called faithful. So we can be called faithful. Finally, the last thing that hold those two words come together in that last little phrase they're saying, in Christ. And now this is Paul's trump card. Paul uses it 150 times, plus over 150 times through the New Testament, those words, in Christ. And it's a word that actually represents something called union. It's a doctrine that is my favorite doctrine of all. Union. And uh, based at the very essence of it is basically this, is that everything that's true about Christ is now true about me. How scandalous is that? My brain always starts to freak out saying, we're in heresy territory here. But the truth is, everything that's true about Christ is now true about me. It's, it's this understanding of this that should blow our mind that actually this, this union means that there's four elements to the doctrine of union very quickly if you, if, for the four people taking notes. Is that it's, we are now with Christ, we are made like Christ, we are in Christ, and then Christ is in us. The four elements of, of union, if we had time, we could unpack that, but actually the fact that the old, the, it's always based on better promises. The old was that actually you had to come near, you, the, God was over there, and we are over here so we can approach God. And I've said it many times, but it's understanding that in that old, the Old Testament, when the glory of God came, it was called the Shekinah glory, because it came and then left. And the people were hoping to be close by, so God is here, and now he's gone. The new covenant tells us that actually it's not no longer Shekinah glory. It still sounds like a backup dancer for Beyonce. But anyway, it's no longer Shekinah glory. It's now Emmanuel, God with us. And that word Emmanuel doesn't mean visitor. It means resident. Someone who's not leaving. Someone we walk with, and he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's why the, the preface of, 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 of John, or the whole gospel says that actually, and I'll never leave you until the very end. This is that we are with him always, that we actually we are made like him, that actually we give, get given his nature. No longer are we the same person just trying harder. He says, actually, I'm going to give you an unfair advantage. I'm going to give you my nature. I'm going to give you my righteousness. So you're always in credit. No matter how far you stumble, you're always in credit. He is in Christ. We are put in Christ that actually everything that we can, is his that becomes ours. And actually Christ in us. And not only now are we like just a kid in a toy shop, but actually we're somebody who can now move with Christ. And wherever we go, Christ goes with us. That's, that's the doctrine of union that probably would take 5,000 words to, to write even a statement, but done in three minutes. I want to tell you this. Understand that words in Christ holds the key for everything for us. And then the whole thing culminates. It tells us we're holy, faithful, in Christ, and lands with that phrase, may the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. And, and, and it's written in so many of Paul's letters, and it's almost like this like little, it can be almost like a throwaway line, like, just yours sincerely. It's like almost that line that we just throw and doesn't mean much. But actually, it's the hinge of everything. That Paul is bringing this whole thing together, saying actually, no matter, I'm going to address some deep heresy here. I'm going to come and bring some truth here. And he's going to unfold the mystery of mysteries, Jesus Christ, and lift him and exalt him in the most dramatic way in the chapter 1 and chapter 2 as we keep reading. But he says actually all of this is only possible because of the grace of, that the Father has poured out and the peace that he's given us. Now, not, not a superficial, light and fluffy peace, but the peace 
that brings peace between God and man. The peace that settles our heart, no matter the storm, that no matter what circumstance, no matter what man's opinion is, no matter what's going on around us, no matter our past, that actually we can have peace with God. And this morning, I want to remind us again and again that the, that the access we have to this grace and peace, the access we have to this, this holy, faithful in Christ, this identity, this new shaping of our identity being taking place, the only access we have is His blood. You see, for a long time, with those stories I started with, I, I, I started to think, okay, if only, if I just had some mystical experiences, if I just, I, if I just experienced God like that person, then I'll be able to have an answer to that situation. And then, or I said, you know, if, I, if, if only, if I studied the Bible for five years, just I don't leave my room, and I get all the Greek and Hebrew words down, then the people will say, now you can be an elder. Now you can do it. Or if, and now none of these things are wrong on their own, but when they become the thing that shape our identity, something's wrong. And actually, or, or maybe, you know, if I just, we start putting all these different things and we start saying, some, what, what else will get me access? If I just overcome this sin, if I just get through the season, if I just navigate this moment, if I just am able to control my temper bear, then I'll be able to get this access. But actually, the understanding of the gospel is that the only access place we have is His blood. And now this is a thing I learned from a man, Michael Eaton, who was a, a, a theologian and pastor of church in Kenya, and he died recently. But he used to say that he starts his quiet times, and I've learned this always since this moment, that this is how I have to do it. It starts his moments when he comes into worship, in moments like this, when he is embracing it. It's a normal day. He says, I actually come saying, God, I need you in this moment. He says, the enemy's voice will always come at that moment and say, but you're unqualified. The enemy's voice will come and say, yeah, but your circumstances are huge at the moment. Your enemy's voice will come and say, yeah, but I know what you did not last summer, but last night. I know your sin. I, I know. And the, the enemy will start naming us by our sin or unqualified voice or the, the, the voice of man will start to become loud or a circumstance. Your child is, this, this thing of depression is too big. This anxiety is too huge. This fear is too big. This addiction is too much. And we start to get, and we start to approach life like that nature. When actually in that moment he says, Satan, yes, maybe that's true. But I'm not coming in the name of my fear. I'm not coming in the name of my addiction. I'm not even coming with that qualification or the name of my success. I'm coming in the name of my blood, in the name of his blood, Jesus. And actually, this is the understanding, the starting point for you and I, is when we understand the blood of Jesus and that that is enough for us, I want to tell you that the, the voice of unqualified gets silenced like this. And identities that have been long established, identities that have driven us to weird places and pseudo-saviors and running down different paths start to be redefined by the blood of Jesus. There's a song that we sing, well, used to sing, and it starts with a line like this, on the cross hung a man who redefined who I am. And I believe Jesus is wanting to redefine us. And many of us who have maybe been walking this journey for a while, but actually he's wanting to redefine identities based on the voice of God. I land with this thought that actually this is not just something that has happened uh, that Jesus tells us to do. This is something that he did as well. 30 years of ministry, uh, 30 years of no ministry, of just being. He arrives on the banks of the Jordan. He says to John the Baptist, he says, actually, I need to be baptized. And John says, no, you must baptize me. But Jesus says, no, no, to fulfill all righteousness, I must be baptized by you. And Jesus goes in the water, he gets baptized. You can read about it in Matthew 3. And as he, gets, as he comes out the water, the Bible says that there are a voice from heaven echoes and says, this is my son with whom I love and I'm well pleased. The incredible understanding is that for 30 years up to this point, Jesus has done no miracles. 
He's done nothing profound. And actually, it was only on the back of this that his identity and his calling get set free, that even Jesus had the voice of the Father declaring who he was. I want to say that you and I need the same voice. If Jesus needed to hear that voice as a man to carry that representation, I believe he set out as a model for you and I to hear that voice declaring that you're my son with whom I love and I'm well pleased. And actually I've set you apart. You're holy and you're faithful and you're in Christ and I've got something for you. I, I, I just really believe this as we open this book together. God's going to take us on a journey of a new path, a new identity, a new way. But this morning, I want to pray for people who feel that the voice unqualified has been over their heads for a while. Maybe it's in the business sector. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's over things you've been carrying the trailer. That voice unqualified has defined you and you've walked with a limp. I believe God wants to break it off by his blood right now. Can we all stand to our feet? even feel that maybe you're here today and you've somebody said words over your life that just defined you constricted you and you've 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 carried them like me you carried that word for you've been carried for way too long even that word unqualified i'd love you just to to raise your hands to jesus right now where you stand maybe it's your circumstance you've allowed your circumstances to just define you this is where you're at in life, where the business sector is, how your business is going. Maybe you feel a failure because of business, because this hasn't been rocking, hasn't been working. You maybe, however you feel, you've allowed different things to determine your identity. This morning, I want the Word of God to come and settle on you. The truth of who Jesus says you are by His blood he defines you in a different way. I thank you right now, Father, your voice to echo over, over every heart. I thank you right now, God, for parents here. I pray for every parent here who feel like they've dropped the ball, who feel like I, I wasn't enough. I wasn't enough for my kids. I, I need, oh, I'm not enough. I thank you, Father God, for your voice. Say, this, you are my son. You're my daughter. What's gone is gone, but actually what's ahead is in my hands. I thank you, Father God, that you are redeeming and rewiring futures right now. I pray right now for business owners who feel maybe they've dropped the ball or things haven't worked out in their favor and circumstances have constricted on them. I pray right now, Jesus, would you start to redefine their identities, not by paychecks, identities, not by clients, identities, not by bosses' approval. I thank you, Father, identities secured by you, Jesus. Father, right now, the voice of him, even in, maybe even in the ministry space, people here have had dreams. In, uh, to preach, dreams to lead worship, dreams to counsel, dreams to lead people, dreams to be used by God, but they felt unqualified. If that's you, lift your hands right now. I, I really feel, if that's you, just God wants you to qualify. Father, right now, would your voice come and qualify sons and daughters? Ministers, holy, faithful ministers of the gospel, chosen, appointed, set apart by the will of God. I thank you, Father God, what has gone before will not define any longer. I thank you, Father God, that circumstances will not define any longer. The voice and opinion of man will not define any longer. I thank you for the voice of God, the Father, that qualifies, boom, over our lives right now. And with the lies of the enemy take a back seat, with the lies of the enemy be thrown out, I thank you, Jesus, right now, that what is ahead of us is determined by the voice of God alone. 
I thank you, Father God, that we declare this and we believe it and we receive it. I thank you, God, ministries leap up, giftings that have lain dormant leap up. I thank you that there's a confidence, a divine confidence that comes in, not an arrogance but, and not a false humility, but God, a confidence that knows, that knows who has, he has called me is faithful. It's not your calling, it's God's calling, and actually I can be confident in that. I thank you right now, voice of the enemy be silenced in Jesus' name, voice of unqualified, voice of not good enough, voice of broken, be silenced right now as the blood of Jesus starts to speak a better word. The blood of Jesus, I right now pray the blood of Jesus dripping down onto our thinking, dripping down into our faces, dripping down into our words, our speaking, dripping down into our very being, God. Would the blood of Jesus be the qualifying voice of every marriage, every parent, every relationship, every job, every business over, every minister from Christ. I thank you, Jesus. You are qualifying people to step into the calling that you've got for them because they are chosen by the will of God. They are holy and set apart for sacred use. They are faithful and steadfast because you are faithful, Jesus, and that they are securely in Christ and nothing can take them from your grip. I thank you, God, for your word to bring confidence. I thank you, Father God, no longer will we feel like we're coming to a tank fight with a BB gun. But in fact, God, we, with the word of God in our hearts, deep in our hearts, we come with a conviction that's not based on feeling, not based on circumstance, not based on man's opinion, but based on what you say. And your word has the final word. Your word is the trump card. And I declare it over every life here in Jesus' name. Amen.